Welcome to Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. And I'm Matt Henry. And today we are... St- <laughs> <laughs> I thought I would say it a little bit different. <laughs> um, well, uh, okay, so yeah. we're... T- we're <laughs> <laughs> I just totally threw you off. Really? My work here is done. Yes. Uh, so we are today talking about some perspectives on revival. Um, we're still continuing on this topic. Um better for worse uh and so we've we've worked hard here at trying to make a distinction between true revival and what is called revivalism uh and so just remember revivalism is essentially it's man's attempt to bring about revival or cause god to act in a revivalistic manner and true revival on the other hand is just that pure sovereign work of god um, there, there's nothing that we can do to cause it there's nothing we can do to motivate god to bring it about um, and in that, there are two conditions, or if you prefer, two prerequisites uh, to true revival. Uh, historically speaking, there's the, the true preaching of the Word of God, and then there's biblical praying, where you're pre- praying those priorities of God. Uh, and remember, these, these two conditions are not guarantees that God will therefore necessarily bring about true revival, but as you study the history of revival, you realize these conditions were always present. And so today we want to talk about some varying perspectives on true revival. Um, and when we say true revival, again, we're not talking about revivalism. Catch our earlier episodes on that. Um, and so we're going to talk about that today. So there's a few different views here uh, within the camp of people who hold to revivalism. Um, and so we're going to give those. Uh, the first one is there's just no such thing as revival. <laughs> Um, there are people out there, they're like, it's just not a thing, it's not real. And so uh, the idea here is, is obvious. Um, they, 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 they just believe it's not something that God is doing today. That's not how he works or operates. Um, but what's important to understand with this view is that it is drawn from trying to understand revival based upon the Bible alone. I think that some people will hear that there's no revival at all that somebody could even think that because they're like, but, but, but all you're going to argue is from this position, we're not saying it's ours. It's just this position is when you look at the scripture, you don't see that, you know, you don't see Paul calling people to pray for a revival or look for a revival or hope for a revival. It's just not there. Yeah. And so this is a guy who's just saying, Hey, I'm looking at scripture and I'm not seeing it. So, I'm leaning toward that. Exactly. So in other words, they're not looking at history to develop a theology of this. They're not looking at anecdotal evidence to develop a theology of this. Rather, it is looking at the scripture alone, and here's the key, as the sole source in developing a theology of revival. So those who hold to this position, they do so because they believe it to be the closest to the evidence of the New Testament itself. And that makes me at least... Sympathetic toward yeah, this I, yeah, I would say I'm going to pay close attention because when you're you're going to say, let's let the New Testament work itself out, uh, there's something value. Yeah, there's value there. Absolutely. Let me throw in just a quick note here, too. Additionally, 
uh, I think it's important to understand that those who do hold to this position, they, they don't disregard of the active work of the Holy Spirit today, uh, which is something that they're often accused of uh, or is attributed to them. Rather, they believe profoundly in the present work in ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's just a matter of what they believe or they mean when they talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I think it would, it'll be the same thing kind of like when you and I are talking about tongues. Yeah. We're not disagreeing with tongues. It's just we're pretty sure that what we're talking about, what another person is talking about, is not the same thing. So yeah. let, let's give a biblical argument here of, of this. Uh, first of all, the position holds that the Spirit was poured out upon the church definitively at Pentecost. That's key. So Pentecost is that moment where the great prophecy of Joel 2 and Jeremiah 31 was fulfilled. And as a result, the coming promise of the Holy Spirit has been fulfilled, and the Spirit has been given to the church once and for all. So in light of that, the Pentecost in Acts 2 was a one-time event which brought the church into being. It was unique, unprecedented, and as a result, it, it cannot be repeated because of the promise or because the promise of Joel 2 and Jeremiah 31 would ha, has already been fulfilled. In other words, we're just living in that experience. Yeah. Um, so everything we now see regarding the work of the Spirit within the church is simply the outworking of that promise already given and fulfilled. So the great concern for those who don't uh, do not see revival in the New Testament is that nowhere was the promise of Pentecost from these Old Testament prophetic texts something that we should be expecting to see repeated. A repeated or multiple repeats of Pentecost was never promised. Um, valid point, by the way. Uh, further, this view holds that Pentecost must be interpreted by the work of Jesus Christ. In other words, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit should be seen as the fulfillment of God's promise centered in Christ alone. So here's a, a quote from a guy named Richard Gaffin. He writes, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost is basically Christ-centered. Peter explains the, out, the coming of the Spirit by preaching Christ, the outpouring of the Spirit as the promise of the Father, and so the essence of the entire fulfillment awaited under the Old Covenant is here seen to be closely connected with the epochal, I guess that's the way to say it, um, climactic events of Christ's work, especially his resurrection and ascension. Together with these other events, Pentecost is part of a single unified complex of events and is epochal on the order that they are. In their mutual once-for-all significance, the one event could not, have been, could not have occurred without the other. In other words, this position sees that too much emphasis has been placed on making a distinction between the coming of the Holy Spirit and the person and work of Christ. The coming of the Spirit is tightly connected to the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And since Christ has risen and ascended, the Spirit, therefore, has come once and for all at Pentecost, as promised by those Old Testament texts. This is the idea that we see in John 14, verses 15 to 21, where Jesus makes that clear uh, when he said that the Spirit comes. He will no longer just be with God's people, but now in them. And that would take place at Pentecost. Yeah. So that, that gets into the idea then of spirit baptism dwelling and filling. 
Um, and we don't have the time to review all that here. We've done previous episodes on that, so you can go check those out. But what we showed was that since Pentecost, the fullness of the Spirit is given to every single believer at the moment of conversion. So you can't get more of him, but at the same time, you can't somehow get less of him. So the argument then is that if the Spirit is already fully within us, and revival only takes place within the church, that is, it is the reviving of life that's already been made alive, then how can revival be a true reality? The church has already had the fullness of the Spirit, and every believer in the church, therefore, has the full work of the Spirit. So if there does seem to be a, a greater awakening within the church, this view would say that it is due to the church simply deciding that it's going to be more obedient. Um, as a result, the effect of such obedience, of course, would be things like evangelism and therefore many people coming to Christ. Um, and a second effect is that greater obedience to the revealed will of God via the word of God. So as a result, there's a heightened sense of obedience and Christ-like morality that results within the church and the greater culture as people are now coming to Christ. All right, so the point with this view is that revival uh, is simply not seen anywhere in the New Testament. So the question then is, what is to be made of past so-called revivals, like the Great Awakening? They would say that since revival is only something that takes place within the church, then it is the church simply becoming increasingly obedient to the Word of God. And they wouldn't call it revival, but obedience. <laughs> um, this, in turn, produces effects such as evangelism and radical obedience, repentance, stuff like that. The strength of the view is that it develops a consistent theology, especially in the area of spirit baptism and dwelling and filling, and doesn't go beyond the text. It also makes good sense of Pentecost as a one-time event. But the weakness of this view is that it can't adequately account for why there was a unique sense of radically heightened obedience to the Word of God within the church in what were considered to be times of revival. Again, the Great Awakening. They can't deny the uniqueness of those times, and so it begs the question of why was there unusual obedience and awakening within the church? Yeah, so— That's all. Yeah, I mean, they're saying, yeah, you have the fullness of the Spirit, so you can't have more of Him or less of Him, so is revival really a true thing where there's right. a greater sense of the right. Spirit there? Um, they would say, no, you're just being obedient, more obedient. The question, though, is— how, how, why, what accounts then for this great obedience all of a sudden and in such capacity, I guess. Um, so view number two then is revival only comes when certain conditions are met. Uh, John Armstrong writes, this view states that revivals are always desirable, generally necessary, and consistently possible if we meet the specific conditions given to us in scripture. In other words, revival is dependent upon the behavior of Christians. Now, he's not arguing for that. He just, that's, he quotes that. Right. Uh, in many ways, the father of this position is a man by the name of Charles Finney, who was a 19th century uh, evangelist in New York. And he argued that specific conditions for revival were prayer and evangelism. Um, he was also a post-millennialist who thought that the millennial or the millennium come in three years if only Christians would do their duty. You hear similar things from people today. Yeah. He also had some other really aberrant theolo the theological theology, positions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, so th this entire position is built uh, in large measure off that very famous Second Chronicles seven fourteen passage, which is it's the go to verse that is always quoted yep. on revivals. Uh, it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So here you can see the whole position is dependent upon the people of God pursuing holiness and praying, essentially. So the key here with this view is holiness. Um, it, it's not sufficient to just pray uh, to long, to desire, or to be passionate about revival. Rather, the church must genuinely become obedient and pursue holiness. So basically, the first view says, look, the revival was a one-time event, and now we just see ebbs and flows of it. At Pentecost. Of a people just obeying and, and growing. This one is saying, no, this is unique, and it's dependent upon the person. Right. We can bring it about. Um, so what are some good things about the view? It's, it's something that's not... Uh, feeling or emotions based. So it's not concerned with desire for revival. We're merely praying passionately. Rather, the focus is on true obedience. And as a result, it does not desire something superficial, but real. But there's also problems with this view. The challenge here is that there seems to be a, confl a conflation of the meanings or the, uh, uh, or the means of revival with the evidence that true revival has come about. So is the presence of prayer and holiness how revival comes about, or is it the presence of prayer and revival the evidence that revival has already come? Let me say that again. So is the presence of prayer and holiness how revival comes about, or is the presence of prayer and revival the evidence that revival has already come about? That's a good Questions: When you see now people all of a sudden praying and 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 what and, and growing in holiness, is that how we make it happen, or is that shows that it's now happened? That it's happened. Good right. question. Exactly. Uh, perhaps this position might be both and, but that still doesn't solve the circular nature of the position. The second key question to ask is: If you're going to be biblical, is where? Is there a promise in the Bible that God will bring about revival if we do the right thing? And so this review view tries to invoke the Second Chronicles 7 passage that many often quote regarding revival. But the problem is that it's completely taken out of context. We, it's actually a fixing fables. We'll we deal with that. that? Yeah. Now, we haven't done it yet. We'll, we'll do it. It's a passage for the nation of Israel during a time of great disobedience. It's not a, something you should apply to the church. Pentecost is also not a good passage. First of all, Pentecost was a unique one-time event that is never to be repeated. But second, conversions took place, but they took, but they took place at the preaching of the gospel. It was not a result of the apostles having a track record of holiness, nor was it the result of them praying with great earnestness. Rather, it was a result of God being faithful to his promise in Joel 2 and Jeremiah 31. As a result, there's really no true biblical warrant for the position, but it sounds good and genuine. But again, if you're going to stick with Scripture alone to inform your position on it, it's a difficult one to prove from the Bible. Uh, that, then we have the third view, which is just that revival is God's sovereign prerogative. Um, to put it in simple terms, this view states that there's no precondition that people must try and meet but rather revival is a sovereign one-sided act of God alone. So first of all, this view sees uh, Pentecost 
uh, as a one-time event. Again, that's never to be repeated. And so when there does seem to be unusual times of God's presence, where there's that increased uh, holiness within the church, or many people are coming to Christ as a result of the church becoming increasingly obedient to things like evangelism, um, it is not a different work from Pentecost, but rather it's a continued blessing or a greater effusion flowing from that Pentecost event. Um, now, that might sound complicated, um, but it's an answer that helps address the problem that those in the first view have, which is that Pentecost is a one-time isolated event. Um, this view agrees that Pentecost, yes, it is that one-time event, but it doesn't deny that the blessings from that one-time event continue on today and that there are times in which those blessings effuse in greater or lesser measure as God is pleased. Um, so Ian Murray uh, says this, he says, thus, uh, although the spirit was initially bestowed on the church by Christ at Pentecost, his influences are not uniform and unchanging. There are variations in the measure in which he continues to be given. In the book of Acts, times of quickened spiritual prosperity and growth in the church are graced to new and larger measures of the influence of the Holy Spirit. And so through Christian history, the church has been raised to new energy and success by remarkable communications of the Spirit of God at special seasons of mercy. Uh, likewise, Armstrong says, for those who hold to this view, terms such as effusion, baptism, and the outpouring of the Spirit are all virtually synonymous with the term revival. So in the book of Acts, for example, you see this, uh, these effusions or the pouring out of the Spirit at different times. So in Acts 2 is Pentecost, and we see the Spirit coming or falling upon. I would actually just simply use the word that's used there in the text, uh, filling uh, the Jews. Um, this was a special one-time event in which the Spirit comes and launches the church. The Spirit came, and He was there to stay this is not an effusion, but that unique one-time event of the Spirit's coming. Uh, in Acts 10 and 11, then, we see the conversion of the first Gentiles. The Spirit seems to come in a special way in which numerous people are converted. In terms of redemptive history, this is symbolic of the Spirit coming upon all Gentiles, as He did not come for the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. Uh, since the Spirit has already come at Pentecost, this is not a new Pentecost or a second Pentecost, but an effusion of the original Pentecost. Uh, the Spirit had come, but now He's working in an extraordinary way among the new people group. And then in Acts 19, it shows the Spirit coming upon a group of, the, of John the Baptist's disciples. That's a fascinating passage in the back uh, hills of Ephesus. These were not Gentiles, nor were the Jews. In, were they Jews in a religious sense? As a result, this group represents an in-between group. Here again, we see an effusion. It's not a third Pentecost, but simply a unique work among a unique people group. Yeah. Now we we covered this in our theology of the Spirit, but many see these uh, separate events as an argument for the doctrine of subsequent baptism or. Uh, second blessing theology, um, because in those texts, they're already believing in some sense about the Christ, but they had not yet received the Spirit. Um, so we, we don't have the time to get into that uh, in this episode, but that is not what this is. Uh, it is not a second blessing theology or anything like that. Um, remember, Acts is a very unique book because it is a hinge point in redemptive history. Uh, the Spirit had come at Pentecost, but He had not yet come to the Gentiles. 
Um, so, so in the sequence of the book of Acts, these various events are symbolic of how the gospel and of course, therefore the spirit was spreading to the entire world in fulfillment of those Old Testament promises. And this is something that's just still continuing on today. Um, so, so the way to understand it is that Pentecost was the once for all coming of the spirit, but that is not to deny that you see these various effusions of the spirit as he is being poured out on other people groups. So for example, as Gentiles or those followers of John the Baptist, I would argue it's not much different than what we might see today when a missionary brings the gospel to a tribe, for example, that's never heard the gospel. Um, they receive the gospel and that entire tribe just comes to faith. They can actually, if they want, it's called, uh, watch a video on YouTube now. It's called E-Tau, have you seen that? Uh, it's spelled E-E, I think then dash T-A-O-W. And it's, a, I believe, a tribe. In, it's either Papua New Guinea or Indonesia. I believe it in Indonesia. But it's crazy because it actually records. It's bad video because this is way back in the days of uh, video recorders. But uh, a whole village literally comes to faith. And it's it's really a, a, a deeply encouraging video to watch. If they've not watched it, I would say sit down and watch it. And don't be shocked if you shed a few tears. But that's a perfect example of what you just said. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So you have a missionary or somebody bringing the gospel and an entire tribe comes to faith. We would ask, what is that? Well, yeah. it's, it's, it's something similar to what we see in Acts when the Spirit works in a unique way among a distinct group of people. But they didn't, they didn't manufacture it. Right. The gospel is being preached and something happened. Exactly. So all of this is to say we should not view these types of events as repeats of Pentecost. The fact that new people groups come to faith is simply the Spirit always being connected to the preaching of the gospel and bringing faith wherever it is proclaimed. Sometimes we see this in an extraordinary way, like an entire village or people group are converted. But other times, um, it's just one person. Yeah. Um, again, this is not a new work of the Spirit, but a continuation of Pentecost as the church is faithful to bring the gospel and evangelize. Uh, there have been many times that missionaries have brought the gospel to unreached people groups, and God did not choose to save them. And other times, he did. Why? Well, because God is sovereign and will cause the Spirit to work in a greater way as He is pleased. That's not to say that new converts are revival in and of itself, because remember, revival is something which happens within the church. But it is to say that God will sometimes work in unique or greater ways through His church as the church is faithful to their calling uh, of evangelism, missionary efforts, pursuing holiness, and such. Yeah, so, so we see this third view as the best view because it strikes a proper balance. Uh, first of all, it, it solves the hangup of view one, which is that Pentecost was indeed a one-time event, but it doesn't force the idea of, of preconditions that people must meet in order for God to work. So for example, prayer and holiness, like we see in that second view. Rather, it is God blessing the normal ministries of the church in a unique way as the Spirit sovereignly chooses to work or effuse, if you will, in a greater way. This can happen in terms of the church experiencing a season of increased holiness where the church becomes far more serious uh, in its walk with Christ. Uh, it can be seen in the Spirit working in a greater way through evangelism and missionary efforts. It can be seen in times of persecution and suffering where the church perseveres in an extraordinary way through what seem to be insurmountable times. And so there are many ways that the Spirit may sovereignly work. But the point to keep in mind is that it is never 
the Spirit working in a different way than he did at Pentecost. Rather, he is consistent with that once-for-all coming, uh, though there may be times that he works in a heightened form uh, or he fuses, if you will, as the church is faithful to those ordinary means of the ministry, namely the Word of God and prayer. And, and we lean heavily toward this third view. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So if we haven't explicitly <laughs> told you that, um, that I, I personally have a lot of sympathy for the first view. I just think it, it stops too short. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't make sense of what's happened in history. Right, right. But but I completely categorically reject that it it's dependent upon us. And when you're using a passage out of context, so horribly out of context, like Second Chronicles, um, that's problematic right there. So it it gets into well, yeah, but my experience becomes the defining yeah. definer of what's true. And well, we just can't. The moment you go there, you, you're there's no stopping it. And yeah. yeah, and the, the 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 practical payoff of this, I guess, even though this sounds like a bunch of theology, is it does affect what you do. So if you if you land in that second view somewhere, you're going to go to the prayer event. Um, but if you land in the first or the third view, you're not. Yeah, and then you start thinking that guys like Todd Bentley, that was his name, right? I mean, and so many others that maybe they are men of God and this is a great work of the spirit. And I want it. I mean, they want to be part of that. They want to experience that. And so all kinds of problems and start to come from these things. Yeah. Yeah. So, so those are the views. Uh, next time we're going to continue on by taking a look at some of the marks then of true revival. That is what actually happens when revival comes about. So that's what's to come. But until then, uh, make sure to tune in, join the conversation, let us know your thoughts on Revival. Don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, and review. Uh, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And tell a friend.